Let's pray. Heavenly Father, please open our hearts, our minds, and our wills to your word, that we may grow in love and obedience to you. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. What sort of mind does it take to bring together over 200 nations, James Bond, the British monarchy, the NHS, Mr. Bean, and the lighting of the Olympic cauldron? Wasn't it wonderful? And into this mixture, there must be a sensitive commemoration of the tragedy that struck on the 7th of July, 2005, as well as a celebration of British history, warts and all. What sort of mind can do that? An expansive, fearless, wacky, unfettered one that can think outside the box. We were, not, we were warned not to expect the grandeur of other recent Olympic opening ceremonies, but ours was more fun. It's that kind of unfettered, fearless thinking outside the box that lies behind this story of the Council of Jerusalem. The apostles and elders of the early church met to find a way to weave together people of different backgrounds. And their backgrounds were so different that for a time it looked as if it was all going to pull apart. This was a sticky time in the life of the church. So we're going to look at the big controversy that this caused, and then we'll look at God's big plan Acts 15 is on page uh, 1110 if you want to turn it up. So the big controversy, first of all. Since Acts 11, there had been a trickle of Gentiles becoming Christians. Now that trickle was turning into a torrent By what means did God intend them to be incorporated into the life of the church? The cultures were so different that it was never going to be easy. Jews have strict rules about meat and how it should be killed and prepared, as well as who you should and shouldn't eat with. They practice circumcision as a sign of belonging to the Jewish faith. Gentiles don't necessarily do this, although some cultures do. And at the time when Acts was written, it was common for meat that had been offered in the pagan temples to end up in the food market. It was something that Jews would never buy. But how could they be sure that Gentiles coming to worship were not buying it. So there were deep differences in culture. It was like mixing oil and water, chalk and cheese. For several years, when Gentiles became Christians, they'd been welcomed into the church by baptism. 
That was how Cornelius and his household in Acts 11 were included. But there were a few raised eyebrows the next time Peter went to Jerusalem. How could Peter, a Jew, eat with Gentiles in their houses? You might like some time to look at Acts 11 and and read that story again. In fact, you might like to turn it up now. It's on page 1105. On that occasion, Peter had explained the vision that he had in Acts 10, that vision of the sheet full of animals of all kinds coming down out of heaven and the voice telling him not to call anything unclean that God had made clean. This was the beginning of Peter's call to go and preach the gospel to Gentiles. Eventually, by verse 18 of chapter 11, the matter was dealt with, and the Jewish Christians in Jerusalem had no further objections. In fact, they praised God for Gentiles being included in it, being included. God was in it, so it was fine. During his ministry to the Gentiles, Paul doesn't appear to have asked them to be circumcised and to keep the Jewish law. But now a question was forming in the minds of the Jewish leaders. They had, sorry, the Jewish Christian leaders. They had no difficulty with the concept of Gentiles becoming Christians. In fact, Scripture had predicted that they would be included. But those Jewish Christian leaders were alarmed that Gentiles were being welcomed by baptism without circumcision and that they didn't observe Jewish dietary laws. And this was especially for Jewish Christians because the Lord's Supper took place within the context of a full meal. What were they going to do? A solution seemed to be that Gentiles should become Jews as well as Christians, receive circumcision, and take on observance of the Jewish law. The people who held this opinion are often referred to as Judaizers or the Judaizing party, and that's how I'm going to refer to them this evening. By the time we get to Acts 15, this is quite a few years later, probably about 10 years after Peter's vision, it's becoming urgent to find a solution. A weight of feeling has built up. Paul had already had this one out with Peter. Peter's vision in Acts 10 and the experience of bringing Cornelius and his family to faith had caused Peter to relax his whole approach on this. That is, until he was challenged about it. In Galatians, which was almost certainly written before the Council of Jerusalem, we find that Peter was eating quite freely with Gentiles. And then when the Judaizing party arrived, Peter backed away from them. In fact, the strength of feeling was such that Barnabas was carried away by their arguments too. And Paul is very clear that this is sheer hypocrisy. They were being two-faced. Peter had eaten with them before, but now he stopped when pressure was put on him. Whatever were Gentile Christians going to make of it? How betrayed might they feel? 
By the time the events related in Acts 15 came about, feelings were running very high, so much so that the chapter kicks off with a bombshell in Antioch. Unless you are circumcised according to the custom taught by Moses, you cannot be saved, it says in Acts 15 and verse 1. It was a big, weighty problem. John Stott puts it like this. The issue was immense. The way of salvation was at stake. The gospel was in dispute. The very foundations of the Christian faith were being undermined. So the Judaizers were not just asking for their feelings to be taken seriously. Their ground had shifted onto quite a different level from there. What had begun as a matter of order had escalated to a question about how we can have eternal salvation. And they were saying that faith in Jesus Christ is not enough, that if Gentile converts were not circumcised, they could not be saved. The wonderful news that Gentiles were becoming Christians should have brought joy to all the believers. Old Testament prophecies were being fulfilled before their eyes. More of that in a few moments. Instead, what should have caused joy was causing schism. And worst of all, the message of salvation was in danger of being corrupted. And it may be that the background events at the time had something to do with it. This was the year AD 49. The Roman Emperor Claudius had just expelled all the Jews from Rome. Where would they go? Back to Palestine, perhaps? But it would have been a challenge to integrate with the Jewish community who had always lived there. And in recent years, that's been seen to be the case. In addition, there was the fact that Palestine was occupied by the, Ro- by the Romans. The Jews had been kicked out of Rome by a Gentile, but the Gentile's deputy was installed as governor in the Jews' own land. It wasn't a happy background to the Jewish-Gentile relationships in the church at all. And I wonder how much division in churches is caused by people being so focused on their own pain that they can't see how destructive their behavior is. Pain was driving this. The situation was too much for just three of the apostles to sort it out. It needed the backing of the whole church. Peter and Barnabas had regained their equilibrium after their wobbling Galatians 2, but they needed to take it to the whole church. They needed to talk about it and make shared decisions. And so often when I've been wrestling with a dilemma, either personal or a ministry dilemma, God's answer to my prayer has been, Go and talk about it with the appropriate people. So off they went to Jerusalem, to the mother church. Paul, Barnabas, Peter, and some others too. 
And in verse 4, we read that they were welcomed by the whole church in Jerusalem, congregation, apostles, and elders. Matters hadn't yet become so soured and hearts were not so closed that people couldn't welcome each other. The signs were good. But as I said, feelings were running high. And it's noticeable from the way it's written that the Jewish Christians from Pharisee backgrounds wanted to have their say as quickly as possible. The leaders allowed them to speak. And they listened attentively. Hasty correctives were not given. Condemnation was not handed out. The views of those who felt so strongly were received. And later, in verses 6 and 7, the apostles' elders met to consider the question that had been raised. And the same principle is extended to the other people involved in the discussion. Peter, Paul, and Barnabas all get a careful hearing. And it's only when it's all been set out on the table that James speaks up in verse 11. It's a feeling of respectful engagement, taking time, confidence that it would all be gone into very carefully by the church. So the pressure is taken off individuals to have all the answers, It allows God to use the quieter people too, people whose insights could have been lost in a rapid-fire style of meeting. So there's a feeling of hope by this point. Blue-sky thinking has become possible. We've moved a long way from the desperate situation of verse 1. I wonder how often God's telling us to listen to one another. So now as we look at what Peter and James had to say, we turn our attention to God's big plan. Not his big plan just to sort this out, but actually the big plan that God had had from the beginning. Here is the source of true thinking outside the box. So God's big plan. Luke has recorded Peter's contribution to this debate rather than what Paul and Barnabas had to say. That may be because of Peter's experience in Acts 10, which, as I said, had probably taken place about 10 years earlier. And Peter has a particular authority since the call to preach to the Gentiles came first to him, and especially since he'd struggled with the implications of it, got it horribly wrong and repented and found his way through it until he'd come to the position that he was in by this point. So what does Peter say? In verse 7... He looks back to God's call to him to preach the gospel to the Gentiles so that they might believe. And then he goes on to say that God showed his acceptance of Gentiles as Christians because he gave them the Holy Spirit, just as he gave Jewish Christians 
the Holy Spirit, the experience of Jewish and Gentile Christians is the same. In both verses 8 and 9, there's an em- emphasis on the importance of what is in people's hearts. In verse 8, we're reminded that God knows people's hearts. In verse 9, he purifies their hearts by faith. In other words, it's the inward purity of the heart that makes fellowship possible. It's not a matter of externals like rituals and keeping to a particular diet. So God has done three things for the Gentiles. He's chosen Peter to preach the word of God to them. God has given his spirit to the Gentiles. And he has purified their hearts by faith. There's only one conclusion to be drawn. God makes no distinction between Jewish and Gentile Christians. They are in the church on equal terms. This is God's revelation. And that is a serious matter. Not to accept God's revelation is to put him to the test, to provoke him. Peter goes on in verse 10. Why do you provoke God? by putting the yoke of the law on the necks of Gentile Christians when neither we as Jews nor our fathers have been able to carry it. Peter is saying that the Jewish law is a hefty weight, like the milk pails that farmhands can only carry with the help of a yoke across their shoulders. In other words, the law couldn't save us Jews So why do we think it can save Gentiles? And then comes Peter's final affirmation. No, we believe it is through the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that we are saved just as they are. Salvation is by grace, not by good works or doing the right rituals and keeping the rules, or anything that we can do for ourselves. We are saved because God is gracious and died for us on the cross and rose again, destroying the power of sin and death. God has done for us all that is necessary for salvation. Those who wanted to make Gentiles become Jews first by circumcision and keeping the law may not have realized it, but they were implying that this was not the case. And it would have sent the gospel message spinning off in the wrong direction. They were implying that there is something lacking in God's actions for us. And that is why the gospel was at stake. And it's why it was important that the authority of the whole church was brought to bear on the matter so that the gospel could be understood properly at this stage 
and go on being properly preached and properly understood. When Peter had finished, Barnabas and Paul spoke. Barnabas before Paul, interestingly. Everybody listens in silence as they're told the miraculous signs and wonders that God had done among the Gentiles. And then James speaks up. He's taken it all in. And what he has to say is really like a moment of revelation by the Holy Spirit. One of those moments when scripture and experience come together and give a fresh understanding, not in the sense of God doing anything new, rather that people have grasped at a deeper level what God has been doing for hundreds of years. They're seeing with fresh eyes. They're thinking outside the box. The experiences of Peter, Barnabas, and Paul resonated with James's knowledge of Scripture. And he quotes the prophet Amos in verses 16 and 17. And this is what he says. After this, I will return and rebuild David's fallen tent. Its ruins I will rebuild and I will restore it, that the remnant of men may seek the Lord, and all the Gentiles who bear my name, says the Lord, who does these things that have been known for ages. Amos's words about rebuilding David's fallen tent are given a Christian meaning by James. It's seen as a prophecy of the resurrection and exaltation of Christ, the descendant of David, followed by the establishment of God's people. Amos was a prophet of the exile, that time when Israel was driven out of her own land by the Babylonians, and only a remnant remained in Israel. The remnant is now in this time since Christ, being built up into a people for the Lord, the church of God, and Gentiles are included, just as Amos prophesied that they would be. And he uses, Amos uses that interesting phrase, Gentiles who bear my name. For James, there was such a close correlation between what the apostles had experienced and the words of scripture, that no other conclusion was possible. What the prophets had foretold was now happening. So for James, there's no question about what to do. He says, we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. So they are not to be asked to be circumcised. They don't have to become Jews in order to be Christians. But the feelings of Jewish Christians have been heard too. And four respectful actions are now set out for Gentile Christians to observe. There's a mutual love and respect about the letter that was sent from Jerusalem to Antioch. And the four requirements are set out 
so that Jewish and Gentile Christians can share the Lord's Supper without offense. And they are to abstain from food polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from the meat of strangled animals, and from blood. In other words, Gentiles were to distance themselves from the practices of certain pagan temples. And some of these requirements are probably temporary, designed to enable that fellowship and the breaking of bread. These days, nobody would expect Christians to eat kosher meat, although Christians in Israel may experience things rather differently. But sexual morality is not seen by the church as a temporary requirement, limited only to this time. We've seen how a potentially disastrous situation was averted by people understanding that salvation is by grace and not by keeping to Jewish laws on circumcision and food. And what priceless treasure it is to grasp this. It's priceless treasure for individuals. The church in Jerusalem acknowledged the trouble and disturbance caused to Gentile Christians when they were told that they could not be saved if they weren't circumcised. Imagine the hurt and the fear that that would have caused. Well, those particular debates are long gone in the church. But in their place, people put all kinds of other good deeds that they hope will make them acceptable to God. And even well-taught Christian people often have quite a strong, lingering suspicion that they might not be quite good enough for God. As a hospital chaplain, I meet it a lot. I often listening to people telling me that they're afraid of dying because they don't know what might come afterwards. And I see people resort to bargaining. I think my good deeds outweigh the bad, they tell me. The idea is deeply ingrained that you've got to be good enough for God. And it's nice to think that we might have helped people and made the world a bit better place than we found it. But if we rely on it for our eternal salvation, it takes on a different complexion. Have you ever felt that somebody was doing good to you in order to get into heaven? Never mind what you need, they've got their salvation to earn. Not a pretty sight. The good news is that salvation isn't by good deeds. If it was, it would be an uncertain business, to say the least. How good is good enough? And if there is a measure, what do we do if we manage to achieve it? Stop where we are and remind God that we deserve salvation? It wouldn't produce much of godliness in us. Our salvation depends and what God has already done for us on the cross. When Jesus died on the cross and rose again, he dealt with all our guilt. And therefore, nobody is beyond the pale. 
There is not a person on this planet who has done anything so bad that God cannot reach them because he has paid the debt for us. And therefore, we can have assurance. When I was a student in London, um, a friend of mine who was a Roman Catholic came to church with me one morning. This was All Souls Langham Place. And we talked afterwards, and I happened to say something about assurance of going to heaven. She was horrified. How could I be so arrogant as to have assurance that I was going to heaven? I went with her to her church the following week, and I didn't hear very much of assurance of heaven. It's But when we believe that our, our, our salvation has been wrought for us by Jesus on the cross, then we can have assurance without arrogance because we're not saying that it's because of anything that we've done. It's entirely because of what he has done. Our part is to receive it by faith. And if you find it difficult to get your head around this, you're not alone. The church has struggled with this, and Protestant churches have struggled with it too. But you might find it helpful to ponder this as priceless treasure for the church too, not just for individuals. This insight that salvation is by grace is the insight that enabled Gentiles to be included as equals. Without it, maybe there'd be no Holy Trinity. And this insight meant that the gospel would be new life for the whole world. The Council of Jerusalem took Christianity out of its box as a sect of Judaism, and it made the church into the international family of God. Priceless treasure, indeed. So let's pray. If you've never received Jesus as your saviour, you might like to do so this evening. So I'm going to pray a prayer to give you an opportunity to do exactly that. Lord Jesus Christ, I thank you that you died on the cross for me and rose again, and that you have done all that is necessary for me to receive the gift of eternal life. I repent of my sins. And by faith, I receive your forgiveness. Please come into my life to be my Saviour and Lord. Amen.